This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Mr. Hamilton, how goes it? Well, it ain't raining, so pretty happy about that. Ain't snowing. Hey, spring's here. Sheep counts. Uh, Life is pretty good. How'd the sheep counts go? Well, dude, I think it was a bit sobering. Um, So, yeah, you you reached out to me right away that morning with a Mm -hmm. picture of a a dead you, right? And, uh, you know, very high mortality rate in that Spences Creek area. That that highway there has sheep on it, and people are driving too fast, and... uh, there was a, I guess, a, a, a vehicle incident and they hit that you. And uh, so our volunteers showed up and that's the first thing they seen. Yeah. Um, there was some coyotes hanging around. So I think it was a little bit sobering, to be honest with you, from the sounds of things. Uh, and of course, our spirits a little bit dampened already because of COVID. We can't have the big group. We kept it very quiet this year in mm-hmm. terms of marketing it. Um, we used previous we volunteers. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, respectfully to our members um you know we we reached out to local first nations we lo- reached out to local community and we had to be respectful we we couldn't show up with 250 people hanging around it's just it, it wasn't res- uh, socially responsible um so this year was a, it's a it's a peculiar year it's been tough for all of us covid uh dead use uh predators um so you know we, we're doing what we can right we're, we're managing the circumstances the best we can um, mm. and it's, it's a challenge, right? So I don't know. Oh, it is. It is. Uh, yeah. When I got that picture sent to me, I'm just like, oh my God, because he said that, that land or that, that you wasn't there an hour previous. So oh. it was, yeah. uh, something that happened while they were there. And, uh, it just shows why we're in that area doing these counts, right. To, to, yeah. to kind of get some accountability on people and maybe, who who knows what kind of mitigation we can put in to stop that in the future. But huge shout out to all our volunteers that uh, were able to take part in this and do their part to give back. So looking forward to seeing the final counts. And there will be more. There's going to be more opportunity. Um, you'll hear on this uh, next podcast, we have Chris Proctor on, um, regional bio. Uh, he's a senior manager, uh, senior biologist for Region 3. And um, there is going to be opportunity for more counts in the future for the Wild Sheep Society BC members. Um, there's stuff around this Fraser River stuff we're doing. So there's going to be an opportunity to get out on the landscape. Mm-hmm. It's just this year with Spences Creek, we couldn't do much. We're, our hands were kind of tied with COVID. And, you know, again, we have to be respectful, do the right thing. Um, and, you know, we had a, a small cohort of individuals on the landscape and, and doing the work there. So, yeah. yeah, it is what it is, right, buddy? Exactly. So. It wasn't a party. It was uh, work. Mostly. Yeah, well stated. Yeah, for sure. sure. So on that note, this is, um, well, actually, before we jump into the podcast, let's just jump into Act Now. Um, you've been working hard managing that campaign. Yeah. Um, we're seeing some good success there. We've got a goal of 25,000 letters collectively. That's across, um, you know, the entire network. We want to show up in Victoria with those 25,000 letters. Um, I think we're just pushing 9,000 ourselves. Mm-hmm. So that's fantastic. It's one organization with 9,000 letters. I'd say we're right on track to get that 25,000. Yeah, we're, so. we're, we're certainly punching above our weight, right? So. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm very, uh, very appreciative of what our members have done. Yeah. And our committee, right? Our government and committee, engagement committee has been working hard. Absolutely. We've been getting the word out. Um, and we got lots of letters as well. We've got uh, local uh, fish and game organizations. Yeah. We've got... Uh, local stores. They've got letters there. Um, if you're interested and you haven't signed it, go to our website. Um, th- there's a link on our homepage to act now, but 
also go to your local fish and game store and uh and sign sign the letter there yeah, get if them it's not involved. there ask them why and bring bring some letters in on our behalf yeah we so. know there's a lot of people out there that aren't on social media so that's where our listeners come in you go go talk to your grandfather go talk to your dad go talk to mom neighbors talk to people that enjoy and recreate in the outdoors because this is about more than just hunting right uh it's it's about sound wildlife management and that's where uh, as we say many, many times, this is our hill to die on and it's, it's the, the death by a thousand cuts. Because if you think it'll stop at just hunting, it's not going to. We know some of these groups, we've said it before, don't even want you to catch and release fish. Some of them don't want you hiking or recreating in the backcountry at all. So we don't want to give them an inch. We need to uh, stand hard and stand fast. In, engage your MLA. Uh, make a phone call to your local paper. Write an op-ed just get it out there that you want wildlife managed properly by the best available science because we've seen it before grizzly hunt if you haven't seen what uh, minister donaldson at the time said he said that it we know that it's not about science this is because people don't want it so science is is damned in this situation we need to remind people that we hunt remind people that we fish remind people that we are shooters we recreate in the backcountry and we also need to remind our elected officials that we vote and they need to remember that we will vote accordingly so get off your butts and help us yeah well said steve yeah really good all right so with that um go to our website uh homepage wildsheepsociety.com and uh act now is there click on the link and it honestly takes you 15 seconds, 30 if you're slow. Um, so with that, we've actually got some good news for a change in the wild sheep community. Um, we talked to Chris Proctor. He's the senior wildlife biologist for Flynn Row in, uh, in Region 3. Chris has been doing a ton of work on the landscape for two decades now, 15 years he's been with the ministry. Um, episode 28, we talk about our um, project on the Fraser River for wild sheep and how we're seeing some successes there. So this is a great listen. Chris has been heavily involved um, right from the very start. He's been part of the project. He's been involved in uh, building it, managing it, and more mm-hmm. importantly, uh, executing it. So great listen with Chris Proctor. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to enjoy this one and some really positive uh, outcomes coming out of that project. Um, it's been This has been our, our, our largest financial investment ever for the wild sheep society bc and this is this is essentially why the wild sheep society bc started is this area absolutely yeah so that's exactly so what throws it is. back to our roots there and we get an update on where we were and where we are now so it's a good time episode 28 chris proctor enjoy the lesson if we told you tomorrow that elk black bear and bighorn sheep were next would you speak up Wildlife needs to be managed by science and not by emotion. And you don't have to be a hunter to take part in this movement. You just have to want sound management of our wildlife in BC. Go to wildsheepsociety.com slash act now to use your voice and demand that BC not use our wildlife as pawns in a game of social management. Act now. Or the things that you love could be next. Good day, Chris. How's it going? Ah, it's going good. Yep. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Steve. How you doing? Chris, uh, are you are you <clears throat> sitting at home right now? I know like there was COVID stuff. You guys have had lots of restrictions around work and all kinds of stuff like that. So are you sitting at home in your office or where are you at right now? I am at home. Yep. Yep. I'm okay. working at home quite a bit these days when I'm not in the field. Nice. Yep. Uh, how many days would you say a month you're putting in like, um, on the backs of wildlife out, out in the wilderness doing your stuff with like, I know it's really busy February, March, April, and then it kind of slows down in, I guess, April really. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, ten, the, the busy times tend to be the fall through the winter and through the spring. Um, you know, through the summer, things are a bit quieter on the wildlife front. We do, um, do some of our work at that time, like mountain goat surveys and that kind of thing. But, um, through the winter and spring, yeah, I'd say we're, we're in the field probably 75% of the time. Is that right? Eh? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Cool. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a bit, but uh, before we jump into it, um, let's, let's just go back and talk a little bit about you, Chris. I know that you've been in, in the wildlife biology through the ministry Flynn Rowe for, you know, almost two decades now. You've been doing great work on the landscape. Your name always comes up with these great projects, but 
Um, can you talk a little bit about your background, you know, how you got started in the wildlife world and kind of the work that you've done in the past? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I think, um, you know, going way back, like hunting, hunting as a child, growing up hunting with my father, I, I remember running into a wildlife biologist when we were hunting, actually, West Williams Lake. And it was, I, I think I was probably 15 or something. Um, didn't really know anything about the field at that time. Ran into this guy out in the out in the bush, um, and he was telling me a bit about his job and stuff. And yeah, I'd say from that point forward, that's what I wanted to do. Um, you know, so following high school, I went to university. Well, I went to college first, and actually in Alberta, um, then to university on uh, Prince George. And yeah, you got a job right away. I worked in Alberta for a while with the Canadian Wildlife Service. Um, got a job here in BC on the South Coast. Initially worked there for a couple of years for the ministry and then uh, been in Region 3 ever since. That's awesome, Chris. Been in Region so now, 3 since, you... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say I've been, I've been in Region 3 since 2008. I started working for the ministry in 2005. So what 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 was your background in school what did you take was it wildlife biology what did you take in terms of your studies i took a degree in in wildlife management yeah at, at university of northern british columbia prince george uh fantastic so then um now with your work uh, you know obviously you're doing a lot of wild sheep work i know you're involved with moose you know i i guess in bc you guys are jack of all trades you know we have ungulate specialists and all kinds of stuff but um, like in region three, you're a senior wildlife biologist is your purview, every species in that, in that region, or, or how does that work? Like how, how do you manage wildlife in that region? Yeah. I mean, we, we are responsible for wildlife management for all species. Um, we have, there's three biologists that work in region three. Um, we sort of split things up a little bit. Like, you know, we got a guy that works on most of the carnivore stuff. And then there's two of us that tend to look after most of the ungulate stuff. Um, harvested species take up a lot of our time, but we deal with everything from beavers to grizzly bears. Hmm. Yeah, so it's a whole range of stuff. Um, you know, most of my work is directed at ungulate management in particular. And I'd say that I'd say I'd spend most of my time working with sheep uh moose and mule deer probably the big three right on so just out of curiosity chris and this is for me <laughs> is do you, do you guys have a lot of latitude like it's kind of like you know if you see an area of greatest needs or is it mandated where the ministry says hey this is really important these are our priorities um or do you have a, the ability to slide you know within the boundaries and sort of focus on maybe something you're passionate about or something that needs uh, you feel needs more work how, how does that work is it government driven or do you have a lot of latitude there uh we have a lot of latitude i mean we're we're the we're the folks that are on the ground seeing what the issues are so we can certainly um direct our time towards what we think are the the important issues happening on the landscape um you know there are times where where directions come down from above for sure but uh, I'd say there's a fair bit of latitude in the position overall. Yeah. Hmm. So that cool. probably makes it a lot more rewarding. You have the ability to mm -hmm. sort of, you know, focus on areas that you, as opposed to doing something, you know, focusing on what <laughs> someone else is telling you to do. I, I would imagine that would make it a bit more exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So now, Chris, um, one of the things we wanted to talk to you about today is the Wild Sheep Society of BC has been, quite heavily invested in this region three Fraser river project for, for bighorns. Um, and it extends it really to the whole Fraser river ecosystem, you know, region fives on our radar as well. And I know our project chair, Chris Barker is always harassing you, giving you a hard time and trying to, you know, um, find sheep projects. And, and I know Chris spends a lot of time speaking with you. Um, so, you know, one of the things we've embarked in is back in, I guess it was 2018, we got involved with this region three project. Um, and I know you've been kind of spearheading it for us. So um, can we just talk a little bit about what that program is and, and what it entails? Just, a, you know, kind of a high level stuff. And I guess probably the best way to do it is let's go back to maybe the history of the Region 3 and, and I guess the Fraser River ecosystem 
and really what precipitated this? You know, why are we so concerned about it? Why are we doing the work here? Why are we investing this kind of capital and resources into this region? So let's start with that, I guess, with the with the history of the region for starts. Sure. Um, yeah, well, the Fraser River, um, yeah, pretty important sheep population for British Columbia. You know, um, approximately 60% of the California bighorn sheep are found on the Fraser River in Canada or British Columbia. Um, that sheep population declined pretty heavily in the late 90s. Um, prior to that, you know, there's probably around, on the Fraser River itself, there's probably around 2,400 sheep between, say, Lillooet and the Junction Sheep Range in Region 5. Now there's about 800 in that same area. Um, by the by the early 2000s, it had declined to about 1,200 sheep, um, essentially continued to decline since then. At the time, we had attributed those declines to lungworm um, and associated pneumonia resulting from that. <clears throat> I think um, looking back now that, you know, back then we didn't know a lot about mycoplasma over pneumonia or MOVI um, for short. But I think looking back now and just the pattern of, of you know, where these bands um, have declined and where they never recovered, I think if we knew everything, we probably, it was probably movie related declines in the 90s. And we've been experiencing this complex pattern of decline in different bands of sheep ever since. Um, and you know, when, when some of those bands declined in the nineties, they declined, some of them declined by up to 90% and have not recovered since. Others have recovered a little bit and there's kind of a whole mix of, of stuff going on there. But um, <clears throat> so I think, um, you know, we first detected Movi on the Fraser River uh, about 10 years ago. And I, probably only in the last 10 years that we've actually been able to test for it um, and we we found it in two bands of sheep on the east side of the Fraser River in region three um, at Big Bar Creek and Pavilion Creek and I think it's you know I think it's been there for 20 years um, and I think it's probably one of the main things that's preventing recovery of sheep in this population and the thing about Movi, um, you know, once that initial affection occurs, you know, it's pretty complex and it's widely variable in what happens afterwards. But, um, you know, sometimes you might have an all age die off. Um, sometimes the adult sheep aren't affected and it's mostly affecting recruitment. The thing that tends to happen, it doesn't happen all the time, but you end up with, with, um, you know, some of these adult female sheep that do not mount a immune response to the bacteria and they end up living with it, shedding it through their nose and it persists in the population for, for decades or longer, even maybe forever in some cases, um, by the females shedding that bacteria through their nose, they give it to their young lambs. The lambs through the summer are highly, you know, they're highly social in their nursery groups and they end up passing that bacteria to each other. And often by the fall, most of the lambs are dead. <clears throat> um, you know, we've certainly seen lots of examples where there are zero lambs surviving by September. And in some bands of sheep, it might not be that, that severe. You might see um, you know, some lambs surviving, but generally the, the pattern is low lamb survival, low lamb recruitment that prevents that population from recovering in, into the future. Um, and the Fraser River, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's just complicated by the fact that we have, you know, 150 kilometers of sheep habitat and dozens of scattered groups of sheep and as you can imagine, um, you know, there are some lambs that survive. So we're, you create more of these females that live with the disease, shed it, 
over time as you go. So to wait for it to naturally die out, you know, may never happen in a place like the Fraser River where, you know, there's probably a chronically shedding female somewhere at some time. Um, and that, you know, hoping for those circumstances to arrive such that all those shedding females die out at the same time, just, uh, it's not very likely. Yeah. So, so there's a couple points. Um, Chris, there's a couple points there that, um, you know, that I guess, and, and we'll talk about why this is so important coming up about removing those infected females. But, you know, like you said, those females can continue. They, they're healthy enough that they can continue their life, but then the lab recruitment's so low. So that's obviously the key takeaway there and, and why it's important that we're going to manage these unhealthy females, which we'll jump into when we get to the later on into the project here. Um, there's a couple things I just want to, for our listeners, point out that, you know, this California bighorn um, uh, population is really important to BC. Like you said, it's 60% of um, all bighorns, uh, California bighorns in, in, the, in the province. And that's been um, a seed, uh, seed spot for transplants all across North America, right? So um, we've taken California bighorns out of that Fraser River ecosystem and transplanted them across um, North America. So it's really... Um, you know, this has been a great uh, source for, and because of this disease issue, we haven't done that for, I, you know, I don't, since I've been involved with wild sheep, I haven't seen it. You've probably seen it in your early days, but I've never experienced it, right? So. Yeah, yeah, great point. Um, yeah, you know, starting back in the 50s, um, this Fraser River sheep population was a nursery group for sheep that got translocated across the United States, um, California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, um, Utah, and there's probably a few others that I, uh, that I've forgotten. Um, yeah, so really important from that perspective. Um, the other, the other important thing that I'd highlight with these sheep is that, um, the Fraser river met a population in itself, which is composed of all the sheep that are on the Fraser river as well as a couple bands of sheep that are just off living in mostly um, alpine environments. Um, so there are some unique um, ecotypes or life history strategies associated with these sheep. Um, you know, some are migratory between, you know, high elevation summer range and low elevation winter range on the Fraser River. Others live in alpine environments year round. So that, you know, maintaining that diversity of sheep on the, on the landscape is, high value too for sure so chris one one thing that i was going to ask you when you were talking there is um like we know in the okanagan with the highway there um we have the infected population um the east versus west and how the highway keeps them separated and, and disease is kind of more prevalent um on the one side versus the other but if, if we look at the uh, fraser river west versus east that's not necessarily the case is it we have disease events on both sides of the fraser it's widespread is that not the case yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that river is not much of a barrier. Um, we've certainly seen rams cross the river. Um, we've had cases of ear tagged females crossing the river. And we have identified shedding individuals on both sides of the river, um, you know, from the south to the north. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then just one other quick one for you here. So you, you mentioned these subpopulations and, and uh, you know, the, the massive die-off and up to 60% in, in many cases. Um, chasm is the one that really uh, sticks out for me. So I think it was 2013, you guys, there was a, it was documented where there was a roughly 100 in that herd, dropped to 25. And then I think in 2017, 2018, there was um, uh, some involvement with wild sheep. And I think there was only 17 uh, individuals captured or something like that. So that's a classic example where it's a pretty serious die-off to almost extirpation in that herd really right yeah yeah you know we had 120 sheep in that herd um and over one winter um we were down to 28 uh, i think the following spring um that was in 2013 essentially no lamb recruitment since um you know at the time we put a bunch of radio collars on sheep there and the adults have just kind of slowly you know died out over the last seven years or so, eight years, um, to the point that last fall, there was 15 sheep 
12 females and three grams. Wow. For, for somebody on the outside who doesn't know, uh, what is Movi? How does it work? Uh, how is it transmitted? Like what, what happens when you've got an infected Yeah, sheep? great question. So Movi is mycoplasma over pneumonia. It is a bacteria um, that causes, ultimately it causes pneumonia in wild sheep. Um, it generally is sourced from domestic sheep or domestic goats. Um, those species can, they, they're adapted to it, so they live with it, but uh, wild sheep are not. So when they, when, you know, when sheep get infected, it ultimately causes pneumonia. And like I was saying earlier, um, you know, upon that initial infection, it's widely variable how, you know, what happens. Um, sometimes there's a huge die off, like we saw at the chasm. Um, in other cases, it, there may you may not see that die off, and it just seems to affect the lambs more so than the adults. <clears throat> um, but essentially, yeah, I, I think I already spoke to that. Um, the you know the 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 concern is that a few of these individual adult females they end up living with this bacteria, shedding it through their nose. Um, they do not mount an immune response, so I should back up a little bit. Some sheep do, when exposed to it, will mount an immune response and they will beat it. Um, there is that small proportion that mm -hmm. does not mount an immune response and they end up living with it, shedding it and passing it to young lambs on an annual basis. So, um, and then, you know, the lambs are passing it to each other and often they're um, dead by the fall. Wow, sounds like yeah. a hell of a way to go. Yeah, for sure. So, Chris, what what I'd like to do now is jump into like the project <laughs> itself. So we know a little bit about the history. We know the importance of it. Um, so, Wild Sheep Society BC has been involved with this from the start. I know you have uh, as the uh, senior wildlife biologist in Region Three. Um, let's talk a bit about the few of the uh, you know the key players here. So, I don't know if you want to talk to a little bit about uh, Jeremy, his involvement. Uh, talk about uh i feel like i can jump into the funding partners on this i know you're familiar with it too um but let's just talk about who's involved um and how does a project like this come together like you know how did this get started like obviously we know this problem it always exists obviously it's something you want to make a difference with um but how does something like that get moved into okay we've got three years we've got a couple hundred grand um we've got helicopters we got volunteers we got people on the ground how does that evolve um from a from your from where you are. Yeah, well, I can speak to how, how this came about for sure. Um, so we, you know, I mean, seeing that lack of recovery in that sheep population for, you know, 20 years, um, learning more about Movi as we go here over the last 10 years, um, you know, like I said, we, uh, we've only been able to actually test for it and detect that bacteria for probably the last 10 years or 11 years or something. Um, so it was something that we've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, we didn't have the resources to do anything about it, um, until Chris Parker phoned me up one day and, uh, he said, you know, if you want to do it, let's do it. I'll find you the money, um, to start out. And that's kind of how it started. So we... I think that first year, you know, the Wild Sheep Society invested a pretty significant chunk of funding to do the initial surveillance sampling. So we, um, you know, we thought that was probably the best first step is to actually try and figure out where Movi is on the landscape, the distribution of it, um, and, and the prevalence of it by randomly sampling sheep, you know, across the entire Fraser River, basically. Um, from Lillooet to um, north of the Junction Sheep Range. And, you know, we we developed some other partnerships as we went. So, yeah, the BC Wild Sheep Separation Program and our coordinator there, um, Jeremy Ayotte, and sought out other funding to make this happen. So the other key funder has been the Wild Sheep Foundation, and Jeremy has been um, leading the funding applications and that kind of stuff um, for us there. 
and that all this, you know, this was in 2018, roughly. So we, I think we did that first, first sampling across the Fraser river in the um, spring of 2019. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. So I, I think that initial budget was 152,000 roughly. Um, and then, yeah, of course there's a lot of effort put on a lot of the, the stuff from the ministry was in kind, basically your work on this, right. Um, your involvement. Um, and then, you know, wild sheep society, wild sheep, BC, um, Midwest chapter, the wild sheep foundation, they were, uh, I think they put 32,000 into the project as well. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, even industry, we look at Canadian wildlife capture, um, they donated, I think $13,000 in kind, uh, in helicopter time for this. Right. So, um, you know, it's quite a broad based and then, um, you know, did, I know local first nations was involved as well, certainly, um, with on the ground work two years ago. Um, was that you that was involved with uh, bringing for local First Nations in, or how does that involvement work, Chris? You know that relationship as well. Yeah, well, wild sheep are obviously important to First Nations on the Fraser River, so we we engaged with um, with the Stallion First Nation right off the bat. Um, well, I, you know, I, I shouldn't say it was right off the bat. Um, we did that initial surveillance sampling first to try and understand the problem that we were actually dealing with there. And then once we realized that, um, you know, we saw evidence of exposure to Movi and or shedding individuals up and down, you know, throughout the entire area, we, we engaged with First Nations at that point. Um, we actually have a working group established with the Stallion First Nation and six of the, the Northern communities. Um, about this work going on out there so and we definitely yeah we've been trying to involve um those folks on the ground wherever possible okay that's awesome so now uh with regards to the project so there was year one it's a three-year project was originally identified and best i can tell chris from the original uh funding report i've seen from jeremy the projects um evolved a little bit as as you'd expect but um, you know, there, you know, there became this process of test and remove, um, which I think we're, we're going to jump into, but could, you said that first year you were trying to understand them. Um, do you remember, uh, how many, uh, individuals were collared and that sort of stuff? Do you have any numbers on that? Um, I, I've seen it written, but, uh, you, you probably, I don't know if you recall those numbers. There's a lot of stuff that's gone on since then, but, uh, it's quite significant. It was a close to 50 or 60 animals, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, the initial surveillance sampling, we um, we caught 52 sheep in Region 3 and about 30 in Region 5. So we were shooting for roughly 10% of the sheep. Um, and those are kind of some sampling guidelines that come from, um, you know, the Wild Sheep Working Group, WAFA Wild Sheep Working Group. So our objective at the time was to catch 10% of every group of sheep that we could find on the Fraser River. And given that there's about 800 sheep, we ended up with um, yeah, about 82. Wow. Um, Perfect. On the Region 3 side, we collared 40 females at the same time that we did that those captures. And in Region 5, we put 18 collars on those 30 sheep we caught there. Um, okay. Our objective with the collar yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say our objective with the collaring at the time was just to determine um, survival rates, um, causes of mortality, and the degree of connectivity between these different bands of sheep on the landscape. So a couple questions there. Um, one, um, I, I understand that there was nasal and blood serum work done as well. So you tested there. Um, I want to pick your brain on, on the results of that. And then the other one is, what did you guys find with the connectivity? That's the one thing I haven't really seen too much on. I'm curious as to what you found from that. Yeah, good questions. Um, so the initial sampling, um, there's two things we're looking for. We're looking for those individuals that are shedding that bacteria through their nose. Um, we determine that by taking a nasal swab um, and then a lab test called it's a PCR test to look for DNA associated with the specific bug that we're looking for. In this case, it's Movi. Um, the other thing we're looking for, we take blood samples from these sheep 
and we're looking for their history of exposure to Movi. So looking for those individuals that actually mounted an immune response, have antibodies for Movi in their blood. Um, and that, you know, when you think about it, the, you know, if, if say 10% of the sheep are actually individuals that shed that disease, and then we're randomly catching 10% of the sheep, your actual odds of catching a shedding sheep are pretty low, like 1% or, you know, somewhere around there. Um, so that history of exposure tells us a lot about, you know, whether Movi's been there in the past. And if you see it, that history of exposure, then I think you need to assume that it's everywhere in between where you've made those observations. So we saw a history of exposure, you know, right from Lillooet to um, north of the junction. Um, the number, you know, I think it was somewhere around 20% of the sheep we captured had evidence that they'd been exposed to it, so antibodies. And then about 10% of the sheep were actually shedding the bacteria. Um, sorry, Kyle, I forgot your second question. <laughs> So, yeah, I'll, actually, yeah, I got one more question on that. So with that, with regards to that, with those results, so you guys knew there was disease issues. Like you said, initially, you thought lungworm was the concern. And then you, you know, we started testing. Was it much more prevalent than expected? Or was that kind of like, yeah, no, this is what we expected. Were you guys kind of surprised that results? It sounds like, you know, it's pretty significant, obviously. Is that what you guys thought you'd see? I suspected that we would see it everywhere, just given the lack of recovery and the pattern of low lamb survival. You know, when you look up and down across all these bands of sheep on the Fraser River. At the time, I think I expected to see more individuals shedding it. But, um, you know, I think looking back now, I it's, it's, it's just the nature of a small, fraction, you know, this 10% that we're actually sampling and your actual probability of catching one of those individuals is pretty low. So I think if you see it at all, um, you know, like I said, you need to assume that it's, it's almost everywhere. Yeah, right on. Um, and that, my other question, right. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and my other question for you was, uh, did you guys learn anything about the connectivity? Did you find, uh, you know, that the movements were more widespread, less widespread? Was it kind of consistent with what you thought you'd see? I, I think that, you know, while we're still collecting that data, um, so we have in Region 3, um, uh, what do we got? We got about, uh, about two years of data now. Um, I'd say those bands of sheep that, you know, we, you know, in the, over the years, we've roughly determined where these nursery groups are, and we name those bands of sheep. We give them a name, off, you know, oftentimes. I, those bands of sheep are a little more connected than I than I thought. We knew from you know radio coloring projects in the past that often all these bands of sheep will be connected by rams, for example, moving you know rut-related movements in the fall. Um, but yeah, there's a little more connectivity between these bands with the females in these nursery groups than than I think we expected. They're highly connected. Cool. It's like a chain of connections all the way up the Fraser River, basically. Right. Yeah, and I think aside from probably our northern Thinhorns, that Fraser River ecosystem is the most connected, um, you know, ecosystem in in BC certainly, right? Because everything else south of that is pretty fragmented for the most part. Yeah, and those sheep are connected to other other important sheep herds too, right? Like Spences Bridge, for example. Direct connections to the Fraser right. River there. And... Cool. Um, okay, Chris, so we we have year one, we got the samples, we had a good understanding of where everything was. Um, so let's move into year two, which was 2019-2020. Uh, so that would have been, you know, the, the fall and winter of 19, spring of 20. Um, what, what happened there? What kind of and what were some of the findings and outcomes of that process? Yeah, so, um, you know, once we determined, uh, once we understood what we were dealing with, which is, you know, basically the idea that Movi is probably everywhere, um, you know, there's only two things you can do at that time. You can either stand by, let it play out naturally and hope that it, you know, fixes itself at some point down the road, 
that didn't seem like a great option because we had been dealing with, you know, this lack of recovery for 20 years or whatever on the Fraser River. Um, the other option um, is to attempt to treat the, the disease. Um, there's not too many ways of dealing with that. It can't actually be treated with like uh, with an antibiotic, um, that kind of thing. The only way it can be treated is to try and identify those individual females that are shedding that bacteria to their labs and removing those from the population. So that's what we set out to do in, in um, yeah, over that winter, 2019 and 20, um, in two areas. One, we picked the one band of sheep on the west side of the Fraser River where we saw the highest prevalence of shedding individuals and the highest number that had been exposed to Movi from that initial sampling, which was a band of about 50 sheep um, just north of Watsonbar Creek on the west side of the Fraser River. And then the second band that we were treating that winter was the chasm um, band of sheep. So um, yeah, test and remove, um, basically seeking to identify those individuals um, that are shedding that bacteria and removing those from the population. Um, it requires catching, you know, where our objective was to catch all of the females in those bands. So at, at Watson Park Creek, we, you know, we estimated there's approximately 50, 50 sheep there that we needed to catch at the chasm. Um, we were down to a dozen females. So that's what we did. We, uh, we caught all of them with most of them, all of them on the Fraser river with a helicopter. Um, at the chasm, we did catch a few on the ground and then the rest of them with, with a helicopter. And we tested those sheep for, um, you know, the presence of mycoplasma ovum pneumonia in their nasal passages. Uh, if they were healthy, they got released. If they were not, we euthanized them at the, you know, on the spot there. Uh, um so Chris, a uh, quick one there. Um, so historically, when you caught sheep, you'd have to catch them. You'd do maybe a nasal swab. You'd maybe do blood serum work. You'd send it off to a lab. You'd wait six weeks, and then you'd get your results. Now, um, it's my understanding that with this Fraser River project, this is the first time ever where you guys actually had two active biomemes, um, and you're actually able to do the PCR test right on the ground, at least documented that we know of. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the biomeme is, what the PCR, and I think with COVID, people know that term now, PCR and, and that sort of stuff. Um, so I think that that was kind of a, a, a game changer, right? Because you wouldn't have been able to do that test and remove if you didn't have that, uh, the technology to do it. Is that, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. We, um, so the biomeme, it's brand new technology. It is, it is a portable PCR, so the same test that you would do in a lab setting normally, um, we could do on-site with, with these biomeme units. And our, you know, our, so we've, we've had a couple different approaches. We've been doing this for two years now. So speaking on the first year, our general approach was, and we were kind of hoping to, you know, one-stop shop kind of thing. So yeah, you're right. In the past, you know, we would catch a sheep, take a nasal swab, put a collar on it, go back home, send that nasal swab to a lab. And then we had to wait for those results to know whether that sheep had Movi or not. Um, with this, with these biomeme units, we were able to test on site and make that decision, you know, as to whether it was healthy or not at the time. <clears throat> Um, so in the first year we, um, yeah, we caught sheep. We actually slung them to a central processing station, um, site that we set up kind of in the middle of our, of our study area there where we had a big crew of people there. Um, we had like our vet, Helen, Helen was there. She was kind of running the show at the site. Um, we were catching sheep, 
slinging them to the site. It takes about an hour to run this test, um, these nasal swabs through the biomeme. So we were keeping sheep down for, you know, an hour at site and then making decisions as to whether um, we release them or euthanize them based on the results from that, from those biomemes. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that, uh, yeah, we had needed a big crew of people. I mean, we had, you know, these sheep were sedated once they got to the site, um, just cause we were keeping them down for an hour to run the, the PCR on the biomemes. And yeah, it's, it was a, it was a big show with, you know, we had a whole bunch of volunteers there. Um, you know, wild sheep society guys, um, some of the stallion community members were there. Um, conservation officer service was there. Filter studios was there. Um, Arcadia outfitting. Um, he's the outfitter in the area. He was there on the second year. We did it a little differently. I don't know if you want to talk about that now. Yeah, sure. Let's jump right into it, Chris. That makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so the second year, which was just this past winter, we treated a second and third band of sheep kind of south of, of that initial group at Watson Park Creek. Given COVID and restrictions around, you know, having people, big group of people there to the manpower required to, um, to do this with bio memes and keeping sheep down on site for an hour and that kind of thing. And just given that, you know, it's pretty hard on those sheep to keep them down for an hour, an hour and a half. Um, we tried a different approach um, this last winter um, where we bought cheap radio collars um, and we just captured sheep, took the nasal swabs, put a radio collar on every individual that we captured and then we ran the biomeme samples we took multiple swabs from each individual we ran the biomeme samples in the evening at our you know where we were based out of and we also uh, sent a swab to the lab um, after the fact and i think you know just given the tech technology with you know these portable pcrs is new there's a ton of experience required in interpreting the outputs from that and that you know we're still learning on how to interpret that so we saw you know given the fact that we couldn't get a big group of people together given covid um you know the issues around keeping those sheep down for an hour and a half we thought that this might be a more efficient way of and possibly cheaper way of of doing the same thing um and you know a little bit simpler so yeah so this year you know and then we some of the outputs from the bio memes um some of it's pretty straightforward you know you might have a classic response you know for sure with you know high degree of confidence that that sheep has movi and we could remove those ones at that time because we were running those samples in the evening so we would just go remove that in you know those individuals the next day and then we also had the backup swabs that we sent to a lab just in case we missed something with interpreting those outputs from biomeme. Um, so that did happen. And we went back and removed the sheep, you know, a couple weeks later. So, um, Chris, if we could just back up. So, um, and I want to talk about year three here, but with year two, I think you tested 47 individuals. There was 46 ewes and one uh, juvenile ram. Um, how, how many do you guys end up removing roughly? Um, obviously everyone that tested positive for Moby was removed. Do you remember the numbers that came out of that? Yep. Yep. We, uh, we captured 47 sheep. I think a couple of those were young rams. So we were actually including the young rams. If they were hanging around with these female groups, um, we were testing those too. Um, and we removed 11 sheep that first year. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting with that, um, you know, I talked to a few guys that were down there for the project helping out volunteering and they said it was pretty, you know, it was obviously, uh, you know, an emotional experience. Maybe you as a, a bio and your science background, you, you know, you're doing it for the right reason. But I know a few of my buddies that were there, they were just uh, they said it was pretty emotional. But the hard thing was, is you get a sheep come in and it look ragged, haggard. You think, oh, yeah, she's a mess and she's going to be positive and probably 
and uh, you test her and she'd be fine. And then the next one would come in to be a healthy individual and like, no problem. And all of a sudden she's tested Moby for positive for Moby. So, um, you know, it was, certainly it wasn't uh, directly a reflection of what you're seeing on the landscape all the time. And it was a pretty emotional process, you know, having to see these put down in certain cases. Right. So. Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, I was, I was doing most of the spending most of my time doing the sheep capture. So I wasn't actually on site, but the times that I were, it was, um, you know, it was a pretty emotional experience for a lot of the people that were there. And yeah, you're right. You know, trying to ID an individual on the landscape with Movi is not an easy thing. Some are obvious, you know, you might see a sheep that's kind of snotty looking and coughing and stuff, but some of them asymptomatic, right? You can't, you wouldn't be able to pick them out of a crowd of sheep looking at them. So, so we talked about year one, year two, and we touched on year three here. Um, what were your numbers for year three? You've kind of seen all the numbers year one, year two, how many did you capture year three? Um, and are you done now? And, and sort of where does the, where do things go from here um, for region three? And then if you want to jump into region five as well. Yeah. So this past winter, um, we treated a second and third band of sheep south of that initial group that we treated at Watson Park Creek. And we captured 46 sheep there. Um, two of which we determined were shedding Movi and were removed. So a much lower rate than we saw the first year, but um, yeah, another group of sheep where, you know, um, lamb survival has been generally poor. Um, we tend to see a few more lambs in this group than we had at say Watson Bar Creek, for example, but um, overall over the last couple of years, it's been really poor lamb survival there too. And I think, you know, these numbers kind of jive. Um, you know, we saw a higher number of shedding individuals in that Watson Bar band. And, you know, the last couple of years, there's been zero lambs surviving in that band of sheep. And then to the south, you know, a similar number of sheep, fewer individuals shedding it. And then, you know, some lambs um, obviously have been surviving because the lamb ratios were a little higher there. But um, yeah, so that's where we're at um, on the Fraser River. Cool. So now I think overall, um, my understanding is we've seen a change. We've seen this past year. So we did the the test and selective removal in the winter of 1920. And then we, you know, you guys were in the field last fall looking at recruitment rates and you, you noticed some differences. Is that correct? Am I correct in that? Yeah, you're correct. Yeah. We, it's so far it's, it appears hugely successful. We, um, so the Watson bar band of sheep and maybe I'll just back up, you know, one, one step here and just mention that um, I get, I should mention our approach, you know, our approach was to take it a bit slow here. Um, you know, bit of a pilot project, if you will, where we, you know, we're going to try this treatment on a couple bands of sheep, monitor the response. And if it all appears successful, then we are likely going to ramp this up in the future. So that's kind of what we did. So we started with the first band of sheep um, two years ago or a year ago, year and a half ago. Those, you know, once you remove those shedding females, the idea is that when they have their lambs the following spring, like a couple months later, that there shouldn't be a, a chronically shedding female to transmit that bacteria to their lambs, and therefore lamb survival should be higher through the summer. So we had Wild Sheep Society uh, members monitoring these that band of sheep through last summer. Um, just because of the last few years, we've actually been doing these lamb counts in the fall, just to make sure we're past that period of time when, you know, most lambs would end up dead from Movi. Um, we've been doing those counts in November. So we followed that up with an aerial survey in November. And yeah, you know, at Watson Park Creek, you know, the couple falls previous, there's been zero lambs surviving there. And then uh, last fall, there was about 25 lambs there. So approximately 50% wow. of, of the females had a, had a surviving lamb. And then those lambs have continued to survive. We, we were just out there a couple of weeks ago and, you know, still pretty close to the same number of lambs. 
yeah, it's it's unbelievable. And the same effect at the chasm. So, <clears throat> you know, it's smaller group of sheep. There's only, we had to remove two individuals of the 12 females that were there. Um, and then just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were, we were out there and we saw six lambs. So six lambs for 10, um, 10 females. That's We've fantastic. not seen that, that, that number of lambs there since 2013 or 12. Yeah. So then Chris, moving forward with this. So we, uh, you know, at least initial indications are this works, this system works. Um, it's positive and you know, it's probably not an anomaly. It's pretty, there's a direct correlation there. So, um, what does this mean? Like, um, for, you know, does it, do we still manage these herds and will you guys still, um, do test and remove on the chasm herd? Will you still do that with the, you know, this, the, the herds that you tested for on the Fraser, um, or is this expanding new herds? What does it look like? Where do you see it evolving from here moving forward, I guess? Yeah. So, um, yeah, like I said, we're we're gonna take it slow here. Um, by the time that this you know next winter um, rolls around, we will have results from two years from where we started at Watson Bar Creek. We will have results from two years at the Chasm, and we will have results from you know the first summer following treatment for the second and third bands of sheep that we just treated um on the fraser river and i think i think if it you know it looks successful in all cases that um yeah we're planning to ramp this up um right now we are in the process of trying to figure out where all these treatment areas would be on the entire fraser river and how many sheep are in each so that we can come up with a bit of a plan on on how we tackle this here in the coming years um you know, at our current rate, just given that, you know, the number of sheep on the Fraser River, and if we're just treating, you know, one band a year, it's going to take probably, you know, 12 to 15 years to treat all those sheep. So I think we got to ramp it up here once we're comfortable with the approach, um, just so we can get this done in a timely fashion. So obviously right now, you guys are looking at this. I'm sure you're talking to Francis about it. Um, you know, does this involve dialogue with Jeremy? Um, and, and then do you guys see anything happening this, this fall? Like, are we going to do anything in the fall of 20, uh, 21, I guess? Um, do you see anything going on over the winter there? Or is it kind of, you know, you're going to build a plan and then, you know, it's down the road. We'll start implementing it. Uh, no, I think, um, yeah, right now. So, you know, we have a crew, um jeremy you know francis um chris barker and basically this working group that i spoke about um where we are going to prioritize how we do this going forward i think on our you know so we're going to monitor lamb survival through this coming summer for areas that we already treated um the other thing i, I forgot to mention actually was the other half of actually assessing this you know the treatment effect here is actually catching some of those surviving lambs um, which we just did here a couple weeks ago and testing those for exposure to movie the idea being that if there is a shedding female remaining in those groups that we treated you should see it in the lambs first so so we actually just caught a bunch of lambs at watson bark creek um, and at the chasm and we're just waiting on the results there but you know they looked really good and just given the lamb numbers it's highly unlikely there's a shedding female there so that kind of work to monitor the response to these treatments is going to be ongoing um and then yeah it's coming so you know we're going to do those counts in the fall hopefully i think um, we're going to have wild sheep society uh, members out there monitoring lamb survival through the summer for these treated areas and at this point next winter we are hoping to at least treat the band of sheep north of watson bar and i think you know it's another one of about 40 to 50 sheep that has very low lamb survival in recent years so um that's the plan right now and then you know the broader plan that i just spoke about 
we're just trying to come up with a longer term plan on how you might treat all the sheep on the Fraser River and what it might cost in any given year and that kind of thing. Yeah, we're obviously looking at millions in that case, probably like that Fraser project was a buck 50. And that was at the onset. I know we spent a bit more than that. Um, and then chasm was on top of that. So, you know, it's obviously a multi-million dollar um, investment, but it's probably, it's one of the things we're actually seeing success. We've done so many different things. We're trying to improve habitat work. And, uh, but this is the one thing we've actually seen a correlation between the work that's been done around disease and a positive effect on the landscape. So it's, it's actually must be pretty energizing for you as a biologist to see that sort of success. Hey, Chris. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. It's, it's great to see a win on the landscape and, uh, you know, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully these are long-term, um, results that we're seeing here. I think, um, you know, if we see the same sort of effect on lamp survival over a period of, you know, a couple of years, I think, um, yeah, I think I would consider it pretty successful and likely if you implemented that at a larger scale that you are likely to see that same success everywhere. Right. So <clears throat> that's what we're hoping for. Well, I like the thought of what did you tell me? Uh, you just said, uh, 2,400 sheep on the Fraser. I like that number. That seems like a good number to me. So I think we should work for that. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you could get back to there, it'd be unreal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. do, do you honestly think it's achievable um chris like if uh if we can sort of sort this issue out do you think obviously the carrying capacity was there uh the habitat really hasn't probably changed a whole lot but really if we sort the disease issue in theory we should be able to get back to that number right i think so yeah i mean there are other issues affecting sheep um you know habitat in some places is a bit of an issue i think um predation you know, we've, with those collared sheep that we actually collared out there, we've measured pretty significant predation rates on females by cougars um, in some areas there. So I think that could be limiting sheep a little bit. But, you know, the first step, I mean, you got to deal with this disease first, right? Any other management action that you might implement on the landscape is not expected to be successful if you have disease operating there first. So, um, yeah, I think that's the first step. And, I know, you know, we've been talking with, with uh, Wild Sheep Society, you guys with Chris and stuff about, you know, getting going on implementing a burning program too, in conjunction with a bunch of this work. So that's ongoing too, and probably likely focused in areas where we've treated sheep already, right? So I know with Chris Barker, Chris, you know, he talked to me four or five years ago that he had this, in his mind, he had a vision where, you know, <clears throat> To, to see those numbers back that 2400 sheep on the Fraser and uh and you know and, and exactly that like let's sort the disease issue and then we can work on habitat we can work on all these other things but um we can't do anything until the, the disease so he you know he's uh, he's talked about that for the longest time ever since I've known Chris that's one of the first things he talked about to me and um so yeah appreciate what you're doing there uh Chris uh, what your team is doing and you know it's just so encouraging to talk to somebody about wild sheep and hear a small success story because we have so many uphill battles we're fighting every day. And I know you as a regional biologist and you're dealing with moose and a whole bunch of other species across the landscape and you're seeing it even worse, right? You're, you know, you're seeing declines in certain populations. And so, uh, you know, really grateful for what you've done to, to lead this and, and all the effort you put in. And, you know, every picture I see you're out there with a the net gun, chasing these sheep down and putting the time in and, and managing all this and putting it all in it's, it's pretty exciting man i'm really grateful for it and i think our members are too so thank you yeah you bet it is it is very exciting work um and it's very exciting to see a response that hopefully um might turn this whole thing around on the road here so i guess as uh you know but as we start to wrap up here what what advice or what recommendations or what thoughts can you offer our members what could they do what can they do to support this Obviously, there's a financial component. We have volunteers on the landscape, but what could they do? And, you know, any last parting thoughts or, or you know, um, about the project moving forward? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think one of the most helpful things, you know, for folks that are out there on the ground is just keeping your eyes open on, you know, 
the health of wild sheep, it's really difficult to know, for example, where domestic sheep end up on the landscape. Sometimes, you know, they, they're there and gone before we even know about it. So any observations of domestic sheep are really useful to us. Um, observations on the health of wild sheep, you know, if you see sheep coughing or anything out of the ordinary, um, yeah, we sure like to hear about that stuff too. Um, how would somebody, you know, how would somebody eyes. get a hold, how would somebody get a hold of you if they were to witness that stuff? Uh, well, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, our, my contact info is on the government directory on online, for example. So searching my name, it'll come up. Um, or, you know, even through the wild sheep site, I, I get tons of reports, you know, you guys know who I am. So if you get the report, pass it along, right? That kind of thing. Yeah, we can include that in the show notes as well. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes for sure. And then, um, you know, uh, the provincial uh, wild sheep and mountain goat specialist, Bill Jex, uh, released an app recently um, around uh, wild sheep and mountain goat sighting. Um, is that something that you get access to, Chris? Or does that benefit you? Probably the most effective is to reach out directly to you, but also run it through that app. Or what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I do have access to those data. Um, so I think both are good avenues to submit those observations for sure. I guess the most immediate response is just to reach directly out to you. So we'll definitely include your contact info here and uh, and your home address and everything. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> well, you know, it's like I said, sometimes with these issues like domestic sheep on the landscape, there's been cases, I'm sure, where, you know, sheep have been there and then they're gone before we even know about it, right? And so if you if you tend to see, like, um, evidence that Movi is affecting a sheep herd, but we didn't know anything about domestic sheep being in the area, um, you just having that information alone is, is really useful to sort out things after the fact, right? So. Cool. Well, that's kind of all I have for you, Steve. Anything uh, you want to wrap up with, uh, Chris? No, it's uh, every, every time we get a chance to discuss Movi, no matter who it's with, it's always uh, a sobering conversation that it's it's uh, so dra drastic, so prevalent, and so preventable. So, no, I appreciate your time, Chris, and uh, learning once again about it. I'm going to have you back in five years, and we're going to talk about the 2,400 sheep on the Fraser and how this is a massive success and how we're so happy that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, the best we could do, right? Let's uh, let's be, hope at least, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I hope you're right about that, Kyle. Um, yeah, I'd love to come back and talk about that. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks again, Chris. Appreciate all the work you're doing on the landscape on behalf of Wild Sheep. And uh, and you're certainly a good friend of the Wild Sheep Society of BC. And just thank you for all you've done uh, over the years and continue to do. So have an awesome day, buddy. Yeah, same to you. Yeah, thanks to you guys and all the supporters, Wild Sheep too. I mean, without... You know, without all that support, this stuff likely wouldn't be happening right now. So it's awesome to Fantastic. see. Fantastic. Awesome.